God, we thank you that uh, you've given us your word. You've given us your will. And we can go to it with perfect confidence that it's true and it's preserved for us. And it's not written to confine us, but it's written to uh, bless us and guide us and help us along our way. Lord, I pray that uh, as we read your word and we'll be humbled by it, we'll see the wisdom in it. And even if we don't see the wisdom in it, we'll have confidence in your wisdom and we'll submit to it. We also thank you for sending your son to die for us on the cross that paid for all those sins that we cannot possibly keep. Lord, we try and we want the strength to do better, but Lord, we we know that uh, if it wasn't for you, we'd be just spinning our wheels. Lord, we thank you for the gift of prayer that any time we wish we could drop to our knees and talk to the creator of the universe who knows all before and afterwards. And then, Lord, I thank you that uh, you still have your uh, people here on earth, a remnant that is still striving to seek thee. And I pray we can be part of that remnant. Bless us and guide us as we look at thy word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at the uh, Ten Commandments. We're trying to take a little bit different spin on them. This spin that we're looking at them is a lot of times we think about keeping commandments because if we don't, we'll get punished. So we fear people into keeping commandments. Sometimes we try to bribe people into keeping commandments and we try to reward them into it. But the only way you'll enjoy that rich fellowship with God is if the motivation is love. And we've looked at the first eight commandments. We've been taking them apart in pairs. And I'd like to deliver the last two to you today. Before I do that, I do want to go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And I want to look at Jesus' six but I says. Most of us are familiar with that sermon starting off with the blesses, the beatitudes. But I would like to look at the love attitude in the six but I says. In Matthew chapter 5, 21, he said, You have heard it said, Thou shalt not kill. But then Jesus says, But I say, Whoso is angry with his brother without a cause. What he's saying is, he says, You're guilty of murdering someone when that hate rises to such a level that even though you haven't ceased life in that person, you're still guilty of it. It's a heart issue, not necessarily an action issue. And in 27 and 28, he says, You have heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lusteth after her. If you do that and you lust after a woman, even though you haven't touched her, even though you haven't done anything, fornication or adultery or anything like that, even though you haven't committed the act, if in your heart you want to do it, you're guilty of the same sin. So it turns out to be a heart issue and not necessarily an action issue. So that's what we've been looking at in all the commandments. When we go down to the verse 33 and 34, this is in 43 and 44, these are both comments about speaking words. If you love someone, you will keep your word. Your yea will be yea, your nay will be nay. You'll be plain spoken. You won't speak in innuendos. You speak in innuendos when you're trying to, um, usually when you're, you're trying to deceive someone or misdirect someone. If you love someone, you won't be doing that. And the same thing about uh, uh, your enemy. When you bless someone that is doing you wrong, you know, I can't fear you into doing it, and I can't 
reward you into doing that? And it seems like me, there's only one motive that allow you to do that, and that's to love in the way Christ loved you. Christ loved us when we hated him, and he went to die on us before we ever knew what he did. With that being said, let's skip forward now, and let's go to the ninth commandment. Thou shall not bear false witness. Now, as we go to this commandment, I'm, as, as we've done to all the commandments, I'm trying my best to look at these commandments in a perspective we haven't necessarily looked at before. And here's a little twist I want to give this commandment here. Last week when we talked about stealing, we thought we found out that one of the way people used to steal in the Old Testament was they had scales. So when you came and with money, and let's suppose you came and you had money from Greece, or you came and you had money from Rome, or you had money from Jerusalem, it was made out of silver. And some coins were big, some were little, some were fat, some had holes punched into them. So what they did is to measure the silver, they put it on a scale. And that's the only way they can do their money comparing. Well, it turned out back then is on that scale, a lot of dishonest merchants had two weights. They had one weight for buying and another weight for selling. And that's the way they stole from people. And we talked about that a little bit last week. Keep that thought in mind. Here's the text. This is in Deuteronomy 25, 14 and 15. Thou shalt not have in thine house diverse measures, a great and a small. In other words, you can't have two sets of weights, one for buying, one for selling. But thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure shalt thou have, that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. So again, as you read this, God wants you to have a just weight. And on the surface, it looks like, and God will bless you. See, that's a reward motive. But hopefully we can go a little bit deeper and you do it because a love motive. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Wait a second, Brother Dolph. We covered stealing last week. I want to talk about bearing false witness. Y'all, when it comes to our words, we have two weights. When it comes to criticizing, we have one weight for outgoing criticism and we have another weight for incoming criticism. I know every one of us here is guilty of that. When we're getting criticized, we're very particular. We're very offended. But when we're dishing it out, we're pretty liberal. We have two different weights when it comes to our words. Or let's suppose we're giving account of something that happened. You've heard of spins and slants. When we're telling account and we're on the defense, we want it very accurate. But when we're on the offense charging someone, we're a little bit looser and kind of cherry picking the facts. You know, when we do that, we got two different weights. We're stealing. It's possible through false witness to steal. As we look at this, if we are loving our neighbor as ourself, we won't have two weights in dealing. And I think everyone goes, yeah, 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 I get that. But we won't have two weights when we're criticizing. Man, that's a little bit harder, isn't it? And we'll have two different weights when we're telling stories or stories are being told on us. We want all the details and all the context really accurate, but for someone else, we can conveniently leave out stuff. Well, that's two different weights. God's offended by that. Here is a way that this commandment, maybe we never even thought about that before. We think, okay, thou shalt not bear false witness. I'm in a court of law. I'm sitting in the jury seat and I'm a witness. I'm giving account and I'm saying he did it and he really didn't do it. Well, it's more than that. What if, now here's those three levels we've been talking about love. There's three levels of love. Love thy neighbor as thyself. 
That's um, James 2.8. Love thy neighbor better than thyself. That's Philippians 2.3. And love thy neighbor as Christ love. That's even a higher level. That's uh, John 13, 34, 35. Those are three different levels. Well, right here, if we're talking about our speech, if I love my neighbor as myself, I'm only going to have one weight. Talking about my metaphor. If I love my neighbor better than myself, you know what? The weight I use on my neighbor is going to be lighter than the one I use on myself. And if I love as Christ love, my weight's going to collect a whole lot of dust. Okay, let's dive into this commandment about bearing false witness. Bearing false witness is stealing, killing, and defiling the name of Christ. What are you stealing? You're stealing the guy's reputation or the woman's reputation. In Proverbs 22, 1, it says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great wishes. When you trash someone's reputation unjustly, you know what you're doing? You're stealing from them because your name's worth riches. Ecclesiastes 7.1, a good name is better than precious ointment. You are hurting them. It's like murder. You're defiled. You're, you're causing them injury. And then 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Y'all, when someone's doing that to you, you know what Paul said? I'm going to keep my mouth shut and I'm going to let God deal with them. That's the best way to handle it. Remember from last week we talked about that too? What do you say? Vengeance is mine. So when you take vengeance, you know what you're doing? You're stealing from God because God says the vengeance is mine. Don't take that. I got that done. Don't, just let me. That's what Paul's saying. I got it. Just let it go. False witnesses undermines faith, the gospel, and saints. 1 Timothy 3, 7, have a good report of them that are without you know the best way to witness at work and with your in-laws and your neighbors? Walk a Christian walk. Walk with love. I don't care what you say. They want to know what you do. And there is no place more will that show up than teenagers in a high school or middle school class. They don't care what you say. They want to see what you do. Hebrews 11.2, by faith they obtained a good report. Not by their words. I do have a message coming next week. And if you're looking for something to read, look at, read 1 Samuel 18. David walked in such a way that people saw his walk and they said, the Lord's with him. And it was Jonathan and Saul's daughter. It was Saul. It was servants. It was soldiers. It was Philistines. Everybody saw the way David walked. And they looked and they said, wow. Didn't mean it made him happy. But they saw the way it worked. He didn't have to tell anybody. Well, that's what this is saying too. They obtained, by faith, obtained a good report. They didn't have to pat themselves on their back. They let their works do their business. And then 1 Peter 2.12, good works silence those who speak against you. Don't get in that argument with them. Don't get in that battle. Don't get in that. Just, just let them keep on going on and just keep on walking a Christian walk and then let it play out. I want to talk to you about three preachers. I think I've covered these three a lot over the years, but in 3 John, there are three preachers. There's going to be two that build up the reputations, but you know how they build up the reputations? By their walk. And there's another one, that middle guy, is going to try to build up his reputation, but you know what? He doesn't do it by deeds. You know how he does it? He does it by tearing down the other two guys. Which one honors the Lord? Why? What's this middle guy doing? You know what he's doing? He's bearing false witness. What he's doing is he's stealing. He's trashing God's account. He's trashing faith. He's trashing the gospel. 
We're going to go to 3 John. I'm going to skip the first four verses just to save a little bit of time. But this is talking about a preacher named Gaius. And we're starting here at verse 5, and it says, Beloved Gaius, this is Gaius, Thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. No, this is his actions. Which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Notice how his reputation has been built up. It's been built up through his works. Verse 7, because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers of the truth. So there's one preacher named Gaius. Let's look at the second preacher. He's a man named Diotrephes. Complete contrast to Gaius. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if he come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words. You know what he's doing? He's bearing false witness. And he's trying to esteem himself, but what's he doing? He's trashing God. He's trashing his church. He's trashing the faith. He's trashing gospel. Don't worry about building yourself up. Let God take care of that. He can do such a better job than you. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. He's a bully. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God. He that doeth evil hath not seen God. Now let's look at the third preacher, Demetrius. He hath a good report of all men. And of the truth itself, yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. Notice how Demetrius, he did not have to worry about his words. He did it through his actions. And through his actions, he had a good report. And with that good report came the praise and the spread of the gospel. What happens is, is when we bear a false report, a lot of things happen, and none of them are good. What if my speech were guided by love or motivated by love? If I love neighbor as self, I would only have one weight. I'd only have one standard. What if I love neighbor better than myself? You know, I'm going to be easier on my neighbor than I'm going to be on myself. And then finally, if I love Christ's love, my weight wouldn't come out very often. Now, you're saying, how can you be tougher on yourself than others? I think my wife's a perfect example. We tease her. She'll cook something, and by the time she's done trashing her own meal. We don't even want to eat it. She's that critical of herself in terms of cooking. And we joke because usually it's fantastic. We tell her, please stop. You're ruining it. You're ruining it. Just don't. She's that tough on herself when it comes to a meal. And then when I'll do something, she said, this is good. And I know it's not any good, but she'll be kind towards me. That's why I let her cook and I clean up after her. That's the deal we got. But that's an example. It's the same thing with all aspects of our life. If we really love our neighbor, we're going to be tougher on ourselves than we will be on our neighbors. All right, let's go to the 10th and final commandment. Thou shall not covet. Usually when we hear this, we, we kind of just kind of slide it off a little bit. Actually, this is the one that Paul missed out on. Paul says, I kept all the commandments. And then all of a sudden God revealed to him, he says, no, you're coveting. I know, but I haven't done it. It's, it's, it's kind of like a, a commandment part B or, or, or a two-tiered one. And I want to show you it is not a two-tiered one. It's not two-tiered for a lot of reasons. Number one, I want you to show, some, show you something. It's included in some very serious lists. 
In Romans 1, 28 through 30, this is not the whole list, but I want to show you what's in here. In 128, it says, God gave them over to a reprobate mind filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetous, envy, murder, debate, whispers, backbiters. Notice where covetous is there. Right between fornication and murder. It's a serious sin. It's an evidence of a reprobate mind. Second list. 1 Corinthians 5.11, keep not company if a brother be a fornicator, covetous, an idolater, a railer, a drunkard, or extortioner. We see covetous sandwiched between fornication and idolatry. We always thought of coveting as kind of a, a minor sin. In the Catholics where I grew up, we had mortal and venal sins, like the two-tier sins. No, they're all sins. They all require the blood of Jesus Christ to be paid for. Third list, Colossians 3, 5, mortify your members. In other words, kill them, stop it, cease it. What am I supposed to cease? Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice it's in their list with some pretty serious sins. Did you know what's going to happen in perilous times? In perilous times, people shall be lovers of themselves, covetous, boasters, proud, without natural affection, truth bakers, false accusers. Wow, we just kind of, in that list, there's a whole bunch of things we just talked about and false, bearing false witness. But know what's right in the middle of that list, coveting. Y'all, coveting is a pretty serious offense. One of the reasons it's a serious offense, I call it a leads to sin. Now, what I'd like to do is I want to read a couple accounts, one that you're very familiar with and another that you're maybe be a little more unfamiliar to you. But I want to read these accounts and I want to show you how Coveting unchecked just escalates and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more sins and it just keeps on going. That's one of the reasons why I think coveting is so dangerous. There's something that you want and you want it and you can't have it, but you get so focused on it. I got to have it. I need to have it. I'll be empty without it. And it's amazing how many sins you'll justify in getting that thing that the Lord never intended you to have. The first one I'd like to look at and you could probably guess this. This is the account of David. This is when David covered after a woman. Now again, this is the most familiar account. So I want to go through this account. I'm just going to read the first, oh, I don't know, 15, 16 verses of 1 Samuel 11. And then I want to read a second account, which is parallel to it, but it's a little more subtle, and it relates both to bearing fault witness and also here. But I want you to notice it starts with coveting. First Samuel 11, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. I'm going to be there for a little over 12 to 15 verses. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth into battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass, to pass at eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. There's a whole bunch of sins that's going to follow. But it started with coveting. If this sin was nipped in the bud right here, none of this other stuff would have happened. Well, we were talking about sins. I thought we were talking about the love motivator of the sin. Yes, if David was loving the wife that he, wives that he had, he would have not been yearning for that. If he loved his soldier, he would have not been yearning after this man's wife. The love motive is going to nip 
the sins in the bud. Verse 3, And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You know what turns out? You know who Eliam is? He's one of David's 33 mighty men. You know who Uriah is? One of David's 33 mighty men. When he committed this sin, he was injuring and he was hurting two of his mighty men, the father of this woman and the husband of this woman. And we've studied a wall before. Her grandfather was David's advisor and he really went off the rails, but we'll leave that off for another day. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the, 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 the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. So he just went from coveting to stealing. Shouldn't be that be bad enough? Y'all, it didn't stop here. It kept going. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her. So now he's coveting, stealing, adultery. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house. Verse 5. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now David's going to try to do the cover-up, so he's going to start to do a lot of lying. So not only is he going to take the lamest lamb in vain, but he's going to do some false witness in the lying. And when David was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. It was all a farce. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. So David tried to con him into going home and spending the night with his wife. But Uriah said, I can't do that. My men are out in battle. I can't enjoy my wife in my home and my own bed when my my soldiers are fighting. I I can't do that. So he slept on the king's porch. And Uriah slept at the door of the king's house, and all the servants of his lord went not down to his house. And when they had told David, Uriah went not down to his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down into the house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in open fields. Then shall I go into mine own house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul livest, I will not do this thing. It would be one thing if David took out a scoundrel, but look how he took out, he took out a mighty man that was honest and had incredibly ter- integrity. And David said to Uriah, tarry here a day also and tomorrow, and I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. David lied again, and this time he's going to crank it up and he's going to get him drunk. Well, surely if I get him drunk, his inhibitions will go down and he'll give and he'll go home. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even, when he went out to lie in his bed with his servants and of his lords, but he went not down to his house. Even in a drunken state, he still kept his discipline. And it came to pass in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in front of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he be smitten and die. And it came to pass, when Joab observed the city, he sent Uriah unto a place where he knew the valiant men were. He let him go into battle, and then he withdrew. He left him hanging, and the enemy killed him. This whole domino effect started with coveting. He needed to turn his head. But instead of admiring, he desired. 
and then he stole, and then adultery, and then lies, and then murder. Notice how it all parlayed? That's one of the reasons why coveting is such a serious sin. How do you solve it? You can't. If you just will yourself, you're going to struggle. You're going to have to replace that with contentment and love for the other person. That's what's going to stop it. On the other nine, I can set up all kinds of legalistic rules to keep me from stealing and killing and, and, and going to church and, and calling my mom every Sunday night and all those kind of things to honor parents. I, I can set up little triggers to do that. But when you come to the covenant, no, it's a whole different game. It's going to have to be done through the heart. And I got news for you, the other nine will have to be done through the heart too if you really want to cease it. That was one case you know pretty well. I want to look at a second case parallel to David's. This is one might be a little more obscure. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn forward and go to 1 Kings 21? I'm going to look at another case where someone coveted a vineyard. And when they covered this vineyard, they had to have it. And we're going to see all the sins that follow because of something someone couldn't have. David couldn't have Bathsheba because he was another man's wife. And Ahab, King Ahab, wanted a vineyard, and he couldn't because it was an inheritance of a certain family, and he had to have it. 1 Kings 21, starting at verse 1, and again, I'm going to read about a dozen verses or so. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give thee it a better vineyard than it. For if it, if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give mine inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And Ahab spake unto his house heavy, and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down upon his bed and turned away his face and wouldn't eat no bread. You know what he did? He pitched a brat fit. That's what I got to have this vineyard. I want to talk to you about vineyards and vegetable gardens. Did you know if I went out and bought a piece of land and wanted to start a vineyard? Do you know how long it would take before I could get grapes on it that would be worthy of wine? The agriculture people say 20 years. 20 years. So I'm looking at my age. If I bought a vineyard right now, it wouldn't be for me. It would be for my next generation. And this is something that hit into the family that they've been cultivating for a long time. And his fathers and his grandfathers had this vineyard, and it was a family thing. And it wasn't just like that. And he wanted a vegetable garden. You know how long it takes to raise up a vegetable garden? One season. Ahab says, I want a convenient. I want something close to my house. This is my family's. This is their legacy. This is important to us. And Ahab, I want the vineyard. This was a family inheritance that was passed down. He didn't care about it. It's something he wanted, but he couldn't have it. He's wanting this thing to the point where I'm not going to eat. i got, got to have it so bad. Same chapter, 1 Kings 21, starting at verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? Because I spake to Naboth of Jez the Jezreelite and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard. And he answered, No. 
He said, I will not give thee my vineyard. Verse 7, And Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou not govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. He says, You want this thing? I'll give you anything your little old heart wants. Look at the sins that parlay as a result of this coveting. Verse 9, And she wrote in the letters, Proclaiming a fast, and set Naboth on high among the people and set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him. Does that sound familiar from the ninth commandment? Set up false witnesses. So she sets up the stage, so he's on this honored place, and he's got this witness, these higher liars, and they're sitting there, and she says, this is what you're going to say. You're going to say, thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. And the men of the city, even the elders and the nobles who were in the inhabitants of the city, did as Jezebel has sent them, and as that was written in the letters which she had sent them, and they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. Verse 13. And there came in two men, children of Belial, that sat before him, and the men of Belial witnessed against him. It was completely false. They told a lie. Even against Naboth. In the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Notice the covenant going to the manipulation, to the false witness, to the murder. And said to Ahab, Arise, take position of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money. For Naboth is not alive but dead. And it came to pass when Naboth heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. And it ended up with stealing. Where did it start, y'all? It started with coveting. So we got this list of nine sins, and they're very matter of fact, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. They're concrete, they're measurable, they're observable. And then you got this thing called coveting, which is really hard to observe. I think if we're parents, we get to see it pretty well in our children, if we get to know them really well. But in one another, we don't see it that well. But there is one that does see it really well, and that's the Lord in heaven. He sees that. And what happens is, is that sin of the unattainable justifies all kinds of sin. It doesn't do it legally in God's eyes, but it does it in our eyes when we do not corral that sin of coveting. It is a huge, important sin. Notice with Naboth, there was a fault witness, a murder, a name in vain, stealing, and honoring parents. They even throw honoring parents in there because when he took that vineyard that was in the family for years and years, he was dishonoring all his parents and his parents' parents and all that. Just trashing that whole legacy. And with David or Uriah, he was stealing and adultery and murder and the name in vain and honoring parents. Because also when he took that woman, not only did he defile the husband, he defiled the father and the grandfather too. So coveting is when we really need to get our arms around. What if my actions were love motivated? And I'm going to go through all Ten Commandments here. What if I love neighbor as myself? I would not even be considering his things, let alone take them. Y'all, that's where it needs to start. Before you take it, you got to consider it. And then from considering, you got to want it. And after you want it, then it's 50-50 whether you take it or not. See, we're starting it early. 
What if I love neighbor better than myself? If I loved him better myself, not only would I not consider his things, not only would I not take his things, but I would protect his things. That's really going to nip it in the bud. And the things could be anything from a vineyard to a wife or a reputation or whatever we've talked about in the last four weeks. And then finally, if I loved as Christ loved, my relationship with God would satisfy all my desires. Boy, isn't that a pipe dream, isn't it? It's something we can strive for. Maybe we can hit it once a week for a nanosecond. But then maybe next week we can hit it for two nanoseconds. We want to get to a point where all our needs are met by Jesus Christ. And when we get that, the desires and the coveting will go away. That's our goal, y'all. I've enjoyed going through these, uh, these Ten Commandments and trying to look at them afresh, not in an Old Testament way, but in a New Testament way as Jesus was talking with that scribe over there in Mark chapter 12. May the Lord bless you all. Thank you.